Mac Power Users, episode 503, Fax the Updates with Dave Hamilton. Hello, everyone. This is David Sparks, joined by my pal, Mr. Stephen Hackett. How are you today, Stephen? I'm good, David. How are you? I'm doing excellent. But when we were recording episode 500 and patting ourselves on the back on the fact that we made 500 episodes, I looked out into the audience and saw a guy who's made way more than 500 episodes of a <laughs> Mac podcast. <laughs> Welcome to the show, Dave Hamilton. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's great to be back. This is awesome. I, I love this show. So I'm, I'm really happy to be here. It's been too long. Dave is um, does a lot in the community. He makes the Mac Geek Gab. And what show number are you guys at now, Dave? We released 782 as of the morning of this recording. So <laughs> whenever this close. gets released, yeah. <laughs> That's awesome. The Mac Geek Gab, um, you know, it's a show. Well, you can kind of explain to, for folks with, that listen to MPU about Mac Geek Gab, because I think there's a lot of uh, if you like our show, you'll like Mac Geek App. Too. Yeah, there, there's there's a lot of sort of relationship between the two. We answer people's tech questions is really sort of the focus of the show, uh, where we take questions in via email and phone messages and tweets and Facebook messages all week. And we we actually the secret is we actually answer everything privately. And then we take the ones that are going to be good for the show and we put those in the show uh, we also talk about other stuff as it comes up, tips and tricks and cool stuff found. But the core of the show is for everybody to learn something new every single time that we get together. And uh, we've been trying. So 14 and a half years and counting. And uh, if I've learned five new things every episode, that means I've forgotten so many things. It's ridiculous over the years. And that makes it fun. <laughs> <laughs> and Dave is also, um, I guess, is your title Grand Poobah? What's, what's your main title over at Mac Observer? Uh, a co-founder is is probably the nicest title you could give me, but uh, <laughs> there are days when I get called a lot of different things. So, yeah. But Dave's also an excellent drummer, a sound guy, and an all-around nice guy. So um, we thought it'd be fun to have Dave back on the show. You were on Mac Power Users, but it's been several years. So uh, real happy to yeah you have you, you back. Uh, there was there was a different person here Katie was was around yeah. when, the last time I was on that's right yeah 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 well Katie's doing great talked to her recently so she's yeah. doing good everybody good. Um, anyway uh, before we get started uh, one preliminary announcement about commerce and Max Sparky the um, the shortcuts field guide as this episode publishes is right at the end of that introductory pricing. And I also added, I think it looks like seven additional videos to it since it launched because a bunch of apps, you know, like PCalc and some other ones came out with some really great support for shortcuts. So I added several videos. The The length now is well over six and a half hours. Sorry, Ooh. gang. But <laughs> but uh, if you want to get that introductory, introductory pricing, uh, it's MPU shortcuts and it's only going to last a few more days. So thanks. Uh Dave, yeah, uh, it has been several years since you've been on on MPU. Let's talk about your gear. What are you using these days? Oh yeah, sure. So for Max, I there's three that I use fairly regularly. The iMac, the main daily driver in my office is an eight core, twenty seven inch, twenty nineteen iMac uh, that I just actually got. I don't know a couple of months ago. I waited until they hit the refurb store because why not? You know, I I, I didn't yeah. need one. So yeah. But, but uh, uh, on that, Dave, do you are you do you have a strong opinion on the refurb store? I mean, do you always use it, or are you afraid of it at all? No, I'm not afraid of it. I, my experience with the refurb store is that the stuff that I get from the refurb store is more reliable over the years than the things that I've gotten from the brand new store because the brand new store, 
they make it, they do whatever default factory testing, I'm sure, needs to happen on it, and then they ship it to me. Whereas the refurbs, I like to think, have been through the hands of someone that was making sure it actually works before they ship it to me. And that certainly has been my experience. I've had some not quite DOA, but also not quite, you know, long lasting machines come straight from the factory when I've, you know, when I've decided I need a machine now, like I I also use a 2018 MacBook Air, which, uh, but I bought that when it came out because it was time, you know, it was like, all right, I I don't have, I don't have time to wait for this to hit the reverb store. Yeah. But, um, but yeah. Yeah, so I, I love the refurb store. Unless I need a machine that I can't get there, I always get machines on the refurb store. Uh, Steve, also, um, Stephen, as a former genius, I, I've never asked you that question. What's your <laughs> thoughts on refurb store? I know I totally agree. Not only can you save a bunch of money, but they warranty them as new. You can get Apple Care on them. So if you do run into an issue, it's no big deal to get it serviced. Uh, you know, my iMac Pro is not from the reverb store because I bought it you know, when they were new before they were out there. If you're not in a hurry and you are willing to be a little patient, because you know the they turn over pretty often, so maybe the exact options you want, you know, maybe you got to wait a couple of days or a couple of weeks until that shows up with just the amount of RAM and solid state drive you want. But I, I send lots of people that way. I think it's a super viable option. Yeah, I, I agree too. I've I've probably bought like ten machines through the refurb store over the last fifteen twenty years, and never had a problem with any of them. I mean, they've all been fine. Mm-hmm. And yeah, and and one thing about the refurb store, like you know, if you want to go in the store and buy like a a build to order Mac, often you're looking at waiting over a week, maybe two weeks to get it from China for them to build it and send it to you. If you find the configuration in the refurb store, at least in California, I find it, it arrives in like two days. Mm -hmm. So you actually get it faster if they've got the build you want. If they've, yeah. And if, if they don't, um, you know, there's two sites that I've used to keep an eye on that refurb tracker and refurb me. Uh, Both of those you can set, to you can set like keywords and things so that you really have it alerting you when the model you want appears and that's how i found out about the uh, 2019 imax appearing on the store i sort of hacked their they didn't have them in their list because they never had existed on the store but i looked at their old thing and was like oh this is their formula okay so let me change the year from 2018 to 19 and all of that stuff and was like great okay and then i got an email and i ordered them before um i I felt sort of bad because i ordered mine before we posted an article at tmo that um that that they were out there because i wanted to make sure i got the model i wanted before other people knew about it but you know i guess that's that's just that speaks more about me that's why Co-founder is the nicest title you can come up with. <laughs> well, you, you didn't say how much uh, storage you got in. The SSD storage, I think, is a big deal for folks buying a new iMac. Yeah, well, you know, so I, I, I'll tell you, it's fine. I, I think I got it with, uh, I can't, now I can't even remember, I, with one terabyte and uh, whatever the low... Lowest amount of RAM I could buy from Apple was because even on refurb pricing, it was still cheaper to buy uh, RAM from like Crucial or OWC or something like that uh, after the aftermarket. And that's one of the machines that you can actually upgrade the RAM. That's uh, about it. That's it. Yeah, that's (laughs) right. Yeah, It's a one terabyte SSD in that. But I don't know that I I really worry too much about the storage, the built in storage in an iMac. I, I think you should have enough to get your operating system and the apps that you need and and your home folder but not necessarily your music and your pictures because 
your iMac for most of us is not a portable machine. You're not carting it around anywhere on a regular basis. So having an external drive that, you know, you put all of your music and videos and, uh, you know, photos and all of that on is no big deal. In fact, once you get it set up, you probably forget that it's set up that way and you can save a bunch of money on, you know, paying Apple for an SSD. Uh, so that I, I think storage matters more in a laptop where you, you know, having a, an external drive is certainly a liability uh, for, you know, for daily uses. And you can hang an external SSD off an iMac these days a lot more uh, cost effectively than you used to be able to. So that's right. Yeah. You can get a good one. Yeah. Or you could just duct tape it to the back of the iMac. <laughs> oh, no. It looks nice that way. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. You can pick your favorite color of duct tape, though, so that you can personalize it a little bit. <laughs> or ga- gaffer tape, at least. Gaffer tape. That's gaffer. Yeah. That's right. High quality y- stuff. You went with the uh, a, a pretty well-specced iMac. Why not the iMac Pro? Um. Uh, you know what? It it didn't price wise. It didn't make sense to make that jump for me. Honestly, an eight core iMac is way more than I need. Um, I had I I upgraded that from a 2014 four core iMac, which is now in front of me here in the podcast studio. In retrospect, I actually probably should have put the new one up here in the studio and just kept the the 2014 at my desk <laughs> because it does. It, but the reality is, in neither place does it. Do, do the extra four cores make a difference for me? Um, I mean, sure, there are times when I might run like a handbrake operation or something, and I can see it use all you know all eight cores for a few minutes. It's like, oh, good, I'm getting my money's worth. But otherwise, you know, eh, whatever. Um, I did get it with the better uh, graphics card. There's there's what three graphics cards that you can get in the in the regular IMAX now, and so I got whatever the not very top of the line one is. Uh, that's that's just an emotional holdover from the old days, though, when if you bought the bottom of the line graphics card, that was the thing that overheated in your iMac and blew out first. So I always was like, well, I'll get more graphics card than I need. So I'm not driving the thing as hard. Uh, and, and so I did that. But it was that was not a a mandatory thing. It was like, oh, look, the, the option, the specs that I want exist without, you know, with that particular card. Great. I'll get it. It's fine. You know, it's an extra hundred bucks or whatever it was. And I think a lot of people who are used to buying laptops, you have to change your mindset when you're buying an iMac because all the power and battery stuff you have to worry about. Like normally when you buy a laptop, you get a, a more powerful graphics card. It usually means your battery is going to be worse. Um, you don't have to worry about that stuff. So you can go ahead and, and upgrade the graphics card when you're getting an iMac. It's true. And and then, like I said, I have the uh, 2018 MacBook Air, which is my portable machine. I don't use it. I, I'm, well, I certainly don't use it every day. I use it a lot more than I have other laptops in recent years. But, um, it, you know, at the time when it came out, it was like, great, a hyper-threaded dual-core i5 CPU, that's going to be enough. And it truly is enough. It really gets what I need done when I'm on the road. It's a nice, lightweight machine. And then, in June, Apple bumped the MacBook Pro up so that the low-end MacBook Pro was actually a contender for that sort of, you know, budget, affordable, I don't want to say budget, affordable uh, Mac laptop. It, you know, if you don't need it to be your your daily driver, even if you do and you just don't have any really extravagant needs, for an extra 200 bucks, you can get a MacBook Pro that has a four-core hyper-threaded i5 CPU that's more than twice as fast as the one that's in the MacBook Air. 
So I started wondering, like, if I had to make this choice again today, would I have just spent the extra 200 bucks, get a touch bar, get the four core CPU? And Apple was kind enough to loan me a uh, 2019 MacBook Pro so that I could find out the answer to that question. And we actually did talk about this in Mac Geekab 782 today. But uh, the reality is on a daily use basis, I don't really notice a difference between those two machines, except that the MacBook Pro is a little bit heavier. CPU wise, it, I mean, it's there. And certainly when you need to do things that use all of the CPU, it makes a big difference. But I, I don't like the FOMO that I had when they announced the uh, the 2019 MacBook Pro, you know, low end one. I no longer have after having tested one. I probably still would have bought that because for an extra 200 bucks, it'll last longer. Right. And we'd roll our machines yeah. around here and hand them down and all of that stuff. But you could, if you're not in the scenario where I, where you have to roll things around to other family members or other employees or whatever, take the 200 bucks, buy Apple stock with it. And in four years, use what you made and buy a new laptop. And there you go. <laughs> Good strategy. <laughs> I don't know. You know, I mean, like, you know, it is only 200 bucks, but if you don't need it, put the 200 bucks to work somewhere else or your favorite investment vehicle. I, I can't guarantee the future performance of Apple stocks. So don't, <laughs> there it is. don't hold me to it in four years when you lost your 200 bucks. Cause they went under. Yeah. <laughs> well, well, how do you like, you've been using the MacBook air setting aside FOMO. How do you like using it? I love it. Uh, I had to have the keyboard replaced uh, because <laughs> of course it, you it, did. <laughs> yeah. Six months in. So that, that timing actually worked out great. Cause I got the review unit of the pro right about the time that I needed to send my air. And it was like, well, this is great. Off it goes. Um, but other than that, and now that they've replaced it with the, the, you know, new ish iteration of that keyboard, I really like it. It's, it's a great machine. It's lightweight battery lasts forever. I have no issues with the CPU doing anything other than podcasting, but, that's actually core audio causes the CPU to heat up even when you're not actually using all of the CPU. So that's that happens on any laptop. Uh, but, uh, you know, other than that, yeah, it's it's um, it really is a great machine. I love it. I, I really, really like it. it that, that keyboard really kind of burns me because I I keep thinking about using Macs forever. We had an or, an original MacBook Air, not I'm sorry, not the original redesigned MacBook Air, the 13 inch one. And it was what I think eight or nine years old. It just gave up the ghost within the last six months. And it's like, I just don't believe those keyboards are going to last eight or nine years. I think you know, at some point the warranty is going to be out. Yeah. And then you're going to have to pay real money to get it replaced. And it's just so frustrating to me. But, mm -hmm. but I guess the rumor mill is that we have a new keyboard coming with a new generation of laptops pretty soon. I, I think I tell people if you really need a laptop right now, okay but if you can wait i would definitely sit sit tight for a little bit longer i'd wait to see i i agree with you on that yeah if, if you can wait and see what they do with the next iteration with the keyboard i would go that route but i'll i will say that this new keyboard the the latest 2019 evolution of of that keyboard really i i, I kind of like it it's, it's not a problem yeah i've got the 15 inch uh, MacBook Pro, the 2019. And, you know, I, yes, I would like more travel. Yes, I hate the arrow keys. But as far as like the reliability and feel, it is the best one that they've done since that 2016 kind of redesign. And um, I, my wife has the, the, the MacBook Air and the keyboard's been okay, but she uses it in clamshell mode all the time. Like very gingerly use this, use this keyboard. Uh, I mean, clearly they've, they've got to do something. But I, I, for one, I'm glad that the, that the MacBook Air is back and that, 
folks like you like it so much because it makes me feel pretty confident in recommending it as sort of the default notebook for most people. Unless you know you need more or you just want a bigger screen, the Air is like rock solid, I think, for, for almost everyone's use cases. I agree. Yeah. And if you're, if you're you know, for the people that say, uh, I don't know, spend the 200 bucks, get the, the you know, low end pro and now you're fine. Like you're, you're definitely going to be fine. No, no problems. And the lawyer in me is thinking they're going to get sued so much about these keyboards. They may be replacing them for eight years. I don't know. I mean, that just may happen because. Well, they're already they're already on the extended plan. Right. So they're already good for four years on yeah. it. We'll see. I mean, my first one died within six months and so oh. did my sons. We bought them at the same time. And his has already also been in uh, to the depot. Uh, so that's right. Uh, you know, so I'll, I'll, yeah, but like, I'd rather have something that dies in six months on a four year clock than something that dies in three years on a four year clock. Sure. Right. I'll know by year four where we're going with this thing and how much of a stink I should raise or should I just sell it and, you know, take my 200 bucks and go buy something else. So, yeah. What about on iOS, Dave? I have uh, an iPhone 11 pro, which uh, obviously I just got. That was up from an iPhone XR, so actually down in screen size uh, versus last year, and an iPad Pro ten and a half inch that's a couple years old. How do you how do you like the uh, transition from the XR to the eleven Pro? It took me a little bit to get used to the smaller size. Uh, it really felt like a shock to the system, way more so than going from the ten to the XR last year. Hmm. Yeah, it. I, and it's fine. You know, I got my, I, I wanted to have both and it was time. This was just one of those years, which is sort of unfortunate that we needed to buy two phones for the family, not, not just one. Uh, so we bought an 11 and an 11 pro and I wound up with the 11 pro. My wife wound up with the 11 and we, for the first few days we were both like, I think we should switch, <laughs> you know, but my wife, my wife was like, oh, I don't know. I'm starting to get to like this 11. Uh, you might not have anybody to switch with <laughs> like oh yeah. okay sounds good so uh, i've gotten used to it it's fine i i think i like it now um but but it did take some getting used to for sure more than i expected anything stand out for you now that you've been using it a week or so yeah the well i mean the cameras are fantastic on this thing it's it's they you know that's obviously where they've put all their, you know, all their, their eggs in that particular basket this time. But yeah, the cameras are great. And the battery life, what they've done with that is really remarkable. And it's a mix between what they're doing in software and how they've built that, that CPU so that it has those low power cores that it's using most of the time. But battery life is the 10, 10 R was stellar with battery life. Uh, and this certainly feels like it beats it for me. So yeah, I'm I'm happy enough with it. You know, it's fine. It's a little smaller in my pocket, which isn't so bad. It's all good. It's an iPhone, right? <laughs> yeah, the the battery life is noticeable to me. It, it is. I, it's 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 impressive, and I it's such a big jump in one year because I came from a 10s Max. Gosh, it's so hard for me to remember these names, and went to an 11 Pro Max, and the battery life. It feels like more than four hours have increased because at the end of the day, it looks like I haven't used any battery on this thing, but right. I, I can't get over it. Well, well, they, they put more battery into them, right? Because the yeah. phones are actually thicker. Your cases still fit and all of that, but it, they are, they did get thicker. Yeah. And I think it seems like they cram more battery in, which is great. Yeah. How do you feel about the removal of 3D touch? You're coming from the 10R, which didn't have it, but 
so were you already used to that world of, of haptic touch? Yeah, I I never really felt like 3D touch was fully fleshed out as a as a concept. So moving from the 10 to the 10R, there was there were, there were a few moments of muscle memory where it was like, "Oh, right, I can't do that anymore." Huh. Okay. This is weird. Why would Apple make a phone that doesn't do the thing that all the other phones do? You know. So there was some of that sort of, you know, change resistance frustration that that sort of naturally happens because I'm a human. But other than that, I didn't really didn't care. It it didn't bother me at all. So and it seems like most people are are sort of experiencing that same thing. Like, oh, I got to do this differently now, and then mm-hmm. then that's the end of it. How about you? Did did you you've had it and now you don't have it? Is that right? Are you in that camp? Yeah, I went from the the 10s to the 11 Pro. So this is the first time without 3D touch. And honestly, like I feel like I've adjusted really quickly. It is a, a beat slower, but. Uh, I feel like I've already gotten used to that change. And uh, in fact, picking up my wife's iPhone 8, I was like, oh, this is really fast. Like, you know, trying to preview a link or something. Oh, right. 3D Touch is still on this phone, just not on mine. Right. Uh, Right. So I think think it's a totally fine change. You know, when Haptic Touch first showed up, some of the basics of 3D Touch weren't there, right? Like peak and pop and some other things they were slow to implement. But what I love now is that I can tap and hold on my iPhone or my iPad and things will work basically the same on both devices. And that was not true in the past. So I'm glad for some consistency across the platforms more than anything. Yes. It's like reliable behavior. We never really had it before you'd 3d touch on something and something might happen or it might not, or you may get into wiggle mode if you didn't do it just right. And Mm -hmm. I, I I prefer it. I, I know some folks have been complaining about the loss of it, but uh, the the combination of giving me those tools on my iPad plus reliable um, action, even if it's a little bit slower, uh, to me is a win. And I think that's why Apple did this, right? Because as much as 3D Touch worked, if you spent the time to learn how it to interact with it and make it kind of part of your world, my guess is they got more support calls about people confused by it then they would ever have gotten in praise for having that feature there. I think most people completely either missed that it was there or misunderstood how it was supposed to work. It was never a a well, like I said, it just didn't feel like a well-integrated concept in most cases, largely because you couldn't do it on all iOS devices. This episode of Mac Power Users is brought to you by SaneBox. SaneBox learns what email is important to you and filters out everything else, saving you hours in your inbox. And it works with all kinds of email programs and services. You're not locked to a special app or weird IMAP configuration to make this work. I use it with several Gmail accounts, and it works great. SaneBox is more than just email filtering, though. They have these smart mailboxes. So Sane Later allows you to keep your inbox clean, keeping only messages that really matter. And there, everything else just goes to Sane later. Sane Black Hole lets you unsubscribe with one click, so you keep getting uh, the that newsletter from that shop you visited one time on vacation. They keep emailing you. You just drag it into the Sane Black Hole, and it's gone forever. And, of course, you have snoozing and reminders and a whole lot more. You can also move attachments to a Dropbox or other cloud services where you may have more space than you do with your email provider, which is really cool. 
Sandbox has various pricing plans starting as low as about $4 a month with a 14-day free trial. So head on over to sanebox.com MPU. Again, check out that 14-day trial and you'll receive a $25 credit on any plan you sign up for. 66% of MPU listeners who try Sandbox get subscribed. So I, get, I bet you're going to love it. I know I do. That's sanebox.com MPU to receive a $25 credit on any plan. Our thanks to Samebox for supporting the Mac Power users. Dave, you said you've got the new, uh, well, you've got the 10.5-inch iPad. And one question I had for you, because I know that you, um, you know, you're a Mac nerd. You've been doing this for a long time. And um, I'm just curious, where does the iPad fit in your life? Um, it's a, that's a good question. Um, it fits more and more into my life as uh, time goes on. I use it to read. I use it to manage email at a certain level. Um, I use it to do a little bit of research for the show and answering questions at a certain level. It It's not the most efficient device to use if I need to have several things going at once. I know I can have several things going at once. It's just for me, uh, you know, it's not the right place for me to do that. But uh, so, you know, do I use it as a there's that that whole, you know, production versus consumption uh, argument that happens. I use it far more for consumption than production. But, you know, you throw a keyboard on it like one of those bridge keyboards or whatever, and it can really function in the place of a laptop in many scenarios for me. Uh, so it I use it, but. I use it every day. I use it more frequently than I use my laptop, but mostly for reading, checking email, social media. I, I probably do more social media on my iPad than any other device that I have. So that that's kind of how the iPad fits into my life. Well, what are the friction points for you? I mean, where do you hit the wall with the iPad? Well, you know, for example, if I'm prepping Mac Geek Gab, right, somebody sends me an email, I want to research, okay, if I don't know the answer off the top of my head, uh, you know, I go do a little research on the web or something, great, I come back, now I want to save that email as a PDF or some way that I can then go and use it on the show. And so I can do that, and I've built some workflow shortcuts, sorry, uh, that I can do to, you know, make that PDF and send it to Evernote and, you know, then bring me to Safari or Google Docs where I can paste the the thing into our agenda and that sort of thing. But it's a lot clunkier. That, that last process where I'm finished, the email is here, I'm about to send it out, but I'm going to do this thing so that it's logged and captured for the show. That last little bit, even with shortcuts kind of tweaked to my liking – it still takes four times as long there that it does sitting on my Mac. And then there's the whole thing of, well, you know, you're, you're really only dealing with one window at a time. Yes, I know. I, and I can and do use split screen, but it's not always the right thing. So for that kind of environment, uh, you know, it's it's more efficient on my Mac. But if I'm sitting on an airplane where, you know, elbow room uh, is at a premium, my iPad's often better for that than it is than the laptop is. Yeah, I've given up on laptops and airplanes. The seats are just close enough now that even with the smallest laptop, it still doesn't work. Right, right. So the iPad's great for that. Yep. <laughs> All right, Dave, you are also a business guy. Um, you're a co-founder of Mac Observer. You've got a separate ad business with Backbeat Media. 
And, you know, just as your friend over the years, every time we talk, I, I know you are constantly busy managing the several businesses with employees and contractors and all the things you do. And you're also a nerd. I just thought it'd be fun to talk to you about how you manage all of that. Um, some days better than others, uh, is, <laughs> well, Steven, you know, right. I mean, you're, you're in, you're in a similar boat here too, yeah. and you get a family like I do. I mean, it's, it's, um, I've learned how to prioritize things. I'm not, uh, an expert at it, but I am constantly practicing and learning what things are valuable to do what things are not valuable to do. Unfortunately, I'm, you know, a human. And so sometimes I wind up getting kind of dragged down a rat hole of not valuable time being spent. But, um, but you know, for the most part, I'm, I'm aware and I, I work really hard to manage my schedule. I live by a very simple to-do list. Uh, I, and, and honestly, were it not for a very simple to-do list, I would be dead in the water, uh, years and years and years ago, I found a calendar, a piece of calendar software for the Mac called now up to date. Uh, this was when John Chafee and Dave Riggle were writing that piece of software. It then went through a bunch of iterations that were terrible over the years. And then it sort of came back to life as an app called BusyCal, which they have since sold to Fahad, who makes the to-do app. But that that concept of reminders where it's just a list of things I need to do today, which is essentially what Apple has adopted in their reminders app. Although, of course, with iOS 13 and Catalina, things are breaking left and right um, in terms of third-party integration. But, um, but having that simple to-do list and really kind of managing it uh, – it helps me. That's that's the thing that that keeps me on task and makes sure I I get done the things I need to do, and also leaves me time to sort of you know work on the businesses instead of in the businesses, which is really another balance to that's a whole different thing to work out because it's so easy, especially once you've built something up and it's running along, you can convince yourself that you're being super productive by doing all the things that your business needs to get done, and that's great, but it doesn't get your business to where it needs to be next. And so carving out that time to, to think about those sorts of things, that's actually the hardest part because there's always stuff to do that I can check off on the list and feel productive. So feels like the bullets are always flying. The bullets are always flying. Yeah. You sort of get used to that. You know, I, in my, in my early days when I was in high school, my, my dream job was to be a computer consultant. I thought, what a cool thing. If I can go solve people's computer problems, that would be amazing. And I did that for years. And of course, you know, as I said earlier with Mac Geek Gab, we still do that sort of thing. But, um, but for many years, I was out in the field solving people's problems at their homes and offices. We even built a fairly large business down in, in Austin called Computer Nerds that was sort of pre-Geek Squad and did exactly those kinds of things. And I realized, you know, it's my job to prioritize other people's emergencies because when my phone rings, it's because someone needs help right away. And, and that actually was a very valuable skill to sort of sharpen learning how to prioritize emergencies for everyone, which also, you know, gets to apply to me too, and really being able to evaluate, okay, what, what can we do here to get this limping along? And then, you know, what's it take to come back and actually fix this problem or address it in a more, you know, complete way. And I think honestly that that skill has served me extremely well because otherwise I'm a very ADD kind of distracted sort of person, but I, I have learned the importance and I, there are times when I prove to myself how bad it is to, to not 
operate in that way. And, and then I, you know, wind up losing money and, and that hurts and then you fix the problem. So there's always checks and balances in the system, which I, I guess I, is good. I think, you know, I, I do that focus podcast with, with Mike Schmitz and I feel like yeah. so much of what we talk about is just getting back on the wagon. You know, it's okay. You're going to mm-hmm. fall off. Right. Right. Uh, but, but I want to get back to, you were talking about to do. So I thought the busy Cal to do support just tapped into the Apple reminders database, right? Isn't that what they're. No. Okay. Well, it does. It it does, but it's separate from that. It connects to the Apple Reminders database via CalDAV. Yeah. Uh, And CalDAV support when you migrate your reminders, either in iOS 13 or Catalina to the new normal. Yeah. um, CalDAV, those reminders no longer will be in Apple's CalDAV database, but Apple's CalDAV database will still exist. So if you don't use Apple's Reminders app. You could still use iCloud as your sync destination for all your third-party apps. They just won't appear. Those reminders won't appear in any Apple things because Apple's database is now separate from the CalDAV databases. That's really what's gone on. That's an important piece of news because for a lot of folks, you know, the Apple reminders was kind of like the lingua franca. And then they would try different to-do apps that tied into that CalDAV database. And that you could always go back to reminders if you wanted. But it sounds to me like they have drawn a line in the sand now. They have. Now, there are some apps. I, I'm not sure if there are any Mac apps that do this, but there are certainly iOS apps, not all of them, but iOS reminder apps that tie into the local um, calendar store database on your phone. That would still work in theory because it's iCloud that is doing the syncing of that. There's no CalDAV involved. Right. CalDAV is, for anybody yeah. listening, is an open source protocol that you can sync calendar data amongst, you know, clients of different brands. But but that's what's that's the part that's going away. Google also supports CalDAV. So if you want if you don't necessarily trust your reminders to iCloud now that we don't know the future of that particular part of the engine, Apple invented CalDAV. So it probably will exist. But Red Dutta, the guy that actually invented it, has long since retired. So maybe it won't last there. Maybe it's better to sync somewhere else. I don't know. Maybe I should run my own CalDAV server on my Synology disk station and forget about relying on somebody else. And as I say that out loud, I know what I'm doing this afternoon. Yeah. Add that, add <laughs> yeah. that to the list. Create, create some work. Yep. It's on the list. But it's, like, I feel like that's actually a, a you know, if as long as I can do it in an hour or less, that's probably a really good use of my time. But I'll find out. <laughs> well, if you if you write it up on Mac Observer in the next week, let us know. We'll put a, a link in the show notes for the listeners. Oh, sweet. There you go. Perfect. Yeah. Like okay. so I've been testing Catalina on a laptop with Fantastic Out running and the calendar integration is fine. It, there's no nothing breaking there. So uh, if you're using third party calendar apps and using Apple's built in calendar, nothing is is wrong at this point. So it sounds to me like the problem is reminders and and task or to do items. It, that's all. It's only reminders that that has yeah. this upgrade. Yeah, I'm not. I'm still not sure the wisdom of all of this, but I'm sure somebody else is smarter than me and and made a better decision. Dave, do you guys do anything for uh, team task management? You're you're working with other people. Is that something that everyone relies on their own thing, or do you have some sort of centralized system? Or you know, has, has Sparks gotten you onto the Basecamp train, for instance? <laughs> Um, we, we manage our own calendars separately, but we do have some shared calendars. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, our, our businesses all existed before Basecamp and things like that. So we, we, I mean, we've adapted and adopted a lot of those things over the years, 
But some of the things we've just like this system's working with a shared calendar. We don't need to mess with, you know, adopting something completely new. So we haven't yet. But um, so, yeah, no, we're we're not we're not on base camp yet. Another piece of that is just general communication. I mean, I know you have several writers at Mac Observer and just different things you're doing. Yep. How do you stay in communications with everybody? We use Trello and Slack for the most part. Uh, Trello to manage the flow of from idea to published article and then Slack for kind of our water cooler, for lack of a better term. Boy, Slack solves that problem for so many companies. Yeah, Slack's fantastic. We um, we use it for a lot of different things. At Backbeat, we use it for our our you know our internal chatter as well as you know all of our podcasters and publishers are are on there, so we can stay in touch with everybody. And it you know it becomes its own little community at times. I've even I I can't with one of the bands that I'm in, but but uh, you know I'm a musician too. I'm a drummer, as you mentioned. And we use Slack for one of the bands, and it's fantastic because we can have <laughs> a set. Well, no, because I mean it's like running another business, right? Yeah. You know, we need to have here's here's the channel for set lists. Here's the channel for gig logistics. Here's the channel for you know sophomoric chatter and all of those things that go along with being in a rock band. So yeah, no, it's great. It's it works really well, and and it, it's just a centralized place. But the one band that I'm that I play in all the time, our bass player doesn't even have a smart smartphone, so. It's like, oh, dude. <laughs> it's always the yeah. bass player, right? It's always the bass player. <laughs> you just fax him updates as they come out. Yeah, I know. It's like, yeah. He, he checks his email like once a week religiously. It's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah it, it, just looking back, I mean, Slack solved such an obvious problem and did such a good job of it. It's just remarkable to me how we got by without it. Like, you know, I know Relay runs on Slack and Dave's organization runs on it. It just... It's just a really elegant solution. If you've got a small business and you've got multiple people, I, I don't know of anything better. No, I don't either. And we've certainly tried. I mean, you know, when we started Mac Observer, we were a virtual company from the beginning. We had office space, but we definitely were a virtual company in terms of our you know, contributors and that sort of thing. And we used an AOL instant messenger group chat that uh, we created called TMO Towers. And that's where everybody hung out. And it was great until, you know, Skype came around and you could do groups there. It was like, well, let's do that. Then we can have our daily meetings like with Skype online. Like, this is amazing. And we stuck with Skype for a very long time, probably longer than we should have. Uh, but then we were able to transition right from Skype to Slack. And it's like, you know, my so here's a productivity productivity tip for uh, any business owners out there that I've found has really worked well for me. No one likes change, right? Especially not employees, because it might mean that their job is at risk or I don't know, whatever. Uh, anytime I want to roll out a change, like I knew we were going to switch from Skype to Slack and there was no way we were ever going to consider going back. But I didn't want to like show up and like bang the gavel and, and read an edict. So I did what I always do, which is, hey, um, you know, I've been messing with Slack a little bit. Let's try it for two weeks. Let's see how it goes. That two-week trial thing <laughs> has served me so well over the last several decades of running businesses because it's true, right? If it fails, I don't even have to wait two weeks. If it fails by this afternoon, we can like go back. It's no problem. But when you tell people two weeks, it's like, okay, I, I can try that. Two weeks also is the amount of time it generally takes people to adapt completely to something new. So, you know, it's there. I can't. I wish I could take credit for coming up with it, but I can just take credit for stealing it from my uh, business partner at Computer Nerds years and years ago. But it served me well. 
It's a good one. <laughs> so now when Steven tells me he wants to try something new on the show for two weeks, That's right. I, I know that I'm being managed. Is that it? You are being, you are being managed. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's okay. I, I need to be managed once in a while. <laughs> we all do. Yeah, it's okay. Right. I, so I, I'm with you guys. I love Slack. I, I went to Basecamp. The reason I did for, for my little business is we have these massive files that we move around. And I just wanted to have one place that we could do everything in one and that's why I did it. But I, I still that makes am sense. A, a big fan of, of what Slack brings to the table. This episode of the Mac Power Users is sponsored by one of my favorite applications, OmniFocus. Professional task management is the key to staying on top of your projects. And these days we have more commitments than ever. If we don't have powerful tools to manage those projects, things are going to break. That's why I use OmniFocus. It's so much more than just a task manager with built-in tools to manage project review and tags, giving you so many ways to capture and manage your tasks. I love the way I can just switch perspectives and get to work. This morning, I spent some time doing legal billing. I hit the tag for that. I get all the tasks I need related to that. After that, I did some legal transactional work and I hit another tag and got a completely different set of tasks. It's a really sane way to get your work done and move through your day. And it's all possible with OmniFocus. And the Omni Group even now has a web-based version that lets you access and modify your data from any computer with a web browser. So if you work at an office that doesn't support your Mac or iPad, OmniFocus for the web solves your problem. If you're down on web pages, you really need to check this out. The Omni Group did it right. I use OmniFocus every day. It's how I'm able to keep my act together Maybe do you need a little help? Why don't you try out OmniFocus and use the link in the show notes. They're an awesome company. They make an awesome product. And let them know you heard about it right here on the Mac Power Users. So Dave, I see you quite often at various Apple events. And every time like a soundboard comes up, it's like you just, you're, you're around, you know, you just show up. <laughs> I love soundboards. <laughs> yes. And, and I, I, I knew you as a musician for so many years. I mean, Dave was one of the driving forces, like how I did that for the drummer, um, behind the Macworld All-Star Band for years and just a, an excellent, I mean, you make, you make a living to some extent playing your drums. Um, but I didn't realize how deep you went down the well with sound. So I thought I would just stick you with Mr. Hackett in a virtual podcast room <laughs> to explain to us. What you're doing with all the, I guess you're managing bands and stuff. What all are you doing, Dave? Well, I, I mean, I do a lot of things. My, my sound experience comes from the fact that I'm a drummer and that meant that I had the most crap to move. So my house became the house where band rehearsal was held. And I got sick and tired of not being able to hear anything during band rehearsal. So one day when no one was at the house, I fired up the PA and I started messing with the EQ. Like I would see front of house engineers do at gigs that we'd played. And, uh, you know, I learned a little bit about how to manage feedback with EQ. And that was all I needed because I'm a geek and the thread just kept unraveling and unraveling. And I went deep down the rat hole of all that stuff. So yeah, I don't, um, I actually don't manage any bands. I don't, I try not to even manage the bands that I'm in uh, because I kind of like, I manage so many other things in my life. I just like to show up and play the drums. Sure. But, um, and I also try not to even tell people that I know anything about sound. Like when I join a new band, it's like, oh, maybe I can just be the drummer on this one. That I've proven impossible because if something's not right, it's like, actually, I know how to fix that. Or I have an idea as to how to fix that. And then they're like, wait, you know about this? I'm like, yeah, I do. Um, 
But um, but that really helped me get into podcasting, right? Because I understood sound. I had a lot of gear. So, you know, I understood how to get something that didn't sound terrible and, and all of that stuff and how to route stuff so that you could, that whole mix minus concept that people talk about now, no one was talking about back then when we started, but I had to do it anyway. And it was like, oh, you just use a monitor mix. Like, this is easy. No problem. So... Um, so yeah, I love sound. I love how, so I'm actually curious for you, Steven, like, how do you, you, you assemble each of these files separately? Is that how you mix the show or do you mix it live? How does this go? Yeah. So, so the way that we do it basically across relay is everyone is just recording their local audio and then that, that gets synced by the editor in Mac Pyre's case. That's me. Yep. Us, uh, you know, synced up, chopped up. So I'll go through this and, you know, clean up things, drop the ads in, add the music, and then export it. So that's all happening in post. Really, the reason we do it that way is, you know, I've got the skills to to do more, but a lot of our people don't necessarily have that background or, you know, we want them to focus on, hey, just hit record and like the rest will be taken care of because um, we have right. a freelance editor we work with. And so for us, the, the double ending recording where we're just syncing local files together, even though there's more post-production uh, that that works for us. We may have lost people. I'm gonna go. I'm gonna go back a step. So that's the way that I do it. So I'm. Everyone's talking yep. on Skype, but you, as the listener, will never hear the Skype call. I'm just using it to sync stuff against. But like maybe maybe back up a step and talk a little bit about the the mix minus and some of those some of those things that differ from the way that we do it. Sure. Yeah. So I um when we started Mac Geek Up, I as as David astutely pointed out, I have a lot of stuff going on at all times. It's just how it will always be for me. I don't, I can't tell you what those things will be, but I don't think I'll ever just be sitting around with only one thing to do in my life. And knowing that, and also knowing that release schedule, consistent release schedule was super, is super important for a successful podcast. Agreed. I knew, okay, it's all going to fall on me. Like there's no one else. I'm creating this new thing for us. There's literally no one else in the company that can do any of this. So I need to create a workflow where after I hit, after we stop recording, there is a fixed amount of time between when the recording ends and when the show is published. And I set that fixed amount of time at 15 minutes. And for the most part, well, but, you know, it requires a lot of pre-production work. But, you know, I, I built some workflows and, of course, it's gotten way easier over the years because other people now have built tools that we can leverage. We don't have to do them ourselves anymore. <laughs> there was a lot of automator involved in the early days, but now it's basically all this service called Auphonic that does a lot of the processing and uploading and adds all the metadata and chapters and everything. But... um so what I do is um, I have I have it's not a Skype call because Skype's audio has gotten far worse over the years. Uh, it used to be great, especially when they gave you the secret incantation of how to turn off all the hissy noises that it made. But um, we now use Discord, although I think I'm going to move to FaceTime audio because I think that's now even better on the Mac than than Discord was. But um I, you know, it's just like Skype for anybody listening. It's a it's a voice over internet thing like FaceTime audio is. And I record it all here in one final mix. I do, as a backup, record individual channels as they come in. Mm -hmm. And sometimes, depending on who I'm recording with, I will have them record a channel. Or if we have a guest, I'll use Zencaster or something just to record and capture the audio that way. But by and large, I would say 95% of the podcasts I've ever released have been based on my local recordings here. 
And I do that by sort of mixing things. I have a hybrid setup with an external mixer that feeds back into the computer and I route all the sound out from it. And this is where having all that sound gear in my house for years paid off because I sort of understood how to begin to uh, do this. But now I've got a mixer where I, even now while we're doing this show, I have you guys in one channel and I can adjust what I hear as your volume. Obviously, that's not what your listeners are going to hear because I'm going to give you my recording, which I'm making separately of just me. And I can adjust the whole thing and pan it left and right and get everybody where they should be in the stereo field. And, you know, and I can play music tracks through another channel that I have wired up. And um, but I'm I, I'm essentially recording a live radio show mm -hmm. is is the model that I went with for podcasting. And it's worked very well. In fact, it's what we use pretty much for everybody that does podcasts here at Mac Observer is doing it this way. And it allows us to have a that consistent release schedule, especially for like a daily show, like our daily observations where it, we just got to record and get it out. We don't sure. have yeah, you know, days <laughs> to mix. Yeah. Yeah. Daily is a real grind. I mean, I know I'm looking back through my, my time tracking, you know, for an hour and a half episode of MPU, I'm going to spend probably two hours in the edit, but we have multiple days to get it done. But even something like connected, which we record Wednesday comes out Wednesday, you know, it's I edit it in about real time, so it's a couple hours later. But uh, I think the the point here is that there are different solutions, and for like for y'all's daily show, I did daily for a year, and it's it's a grind, and you've got to iron out every single hiccup, or it's just how you're going to spend all day every day. So yes, even though there there are different methods, uh, I think we're getting. Uh, results at the end that that everyone's happy with, which is what's important that, at the end of the day. That's the idea. Yeah, it doesn't matter how you get there. It's as long as you get there and it sounds good and it's out when people expect it to be out. That mm -hmm. that's the sort of the driving. I think to the driving you know principles or uh, priorities there. So yeah, yeah. The thing that's always impressed me, Dave, is to me like recording a podcast. I don't know. I guess maybe you could equate it to something like playing a game of chess. You need to be very focused on the board. You know, what's happening with the show? What are you talking about? Where are you going to go next? It's it's a challenge, at least for my brain cells. And when I listen to you, I know that you're doing the same amount of chess playing, but you're also throwing in like juggling bowling pins at the same time because you're managing the audio recording in a way that you can have the show published 15 minutes later. I, I still, even though I understand you know, how you do it. I don't understand how you do it, you know? <laughs> well, and I, and I'm also logging chapter timestamps as we go through the show, right? Which I'm doing in real time. So you're, you're juggling and I don't know, chewing gum. I don't know what it, you're doing something <laughs> else as well. But I told you I'm this massively ADD person. So if I didn't have all of those things to do, I would be like reading Twitter or something while I was doing the podcast. And that's actually really bad. Yeah, that is bad. <laughs> it creates this immersive experience. I, I, I think the, the for you, the thing I could equate it to is reading a difficult playing, playing and reading a sight reading, a difficult piece of music in an ensemble, right, where you just have to stay really focused on the sheet music and also everything you're doing to make your instrument sound like it's supposed to sound yeah. and stay with everyone that you're coordinated with. Right. Like and paying attention to the conductor if the t time is changed, all of those things. Right all have to happen simultaneously. Otherwise disaster strikes. And there are times when recording the podcast disaster strikes. Like if, 
if I get too far off of my game, it's a bad it's a bad scene. <laughs> like, but thankfully, it doesn't happen all all but maybe once a year or something. And then it's fun. You just sort of laugh it off. And it's like, oh, OK, well, I'm going to have to do some edits on this one. <laughs> Here's a somewhat related question. Not everybody's making a podcast, but there are lots of folks in the audience who like want to get a good recording of grandpa talking about growing up or for whatever reason, they want to get some good audio. They're probably willing to spend a little money, but not a lot. What's some basic advice you'd give? Um, well, if you know, well, the first advice I would give is capture if you're doing it with grandpa, capture whatever audio you can with whatever device you happen to have with you. If you're planning for it and you have a little bit of time, I mean, your iPhone in a in a relatively quiet room, your iPhone's going to do a pretty good job by itself. If you want to start getting better, you can get, you know, a, even a handheld microphone that would really, you know, be able to sort of capture the sound without hearing the bounce of the room. You know, right now you're hearing all three of us on, you know, short field microphones, I'll call them, right, where the it's picking up just what's in front of it and not everything around it. And your iPhone's sort of built to pick up everything around it. So you could get a microphone for, you know, 50 bucks, certainly 100 bucks that you could work with your mic with your iPhone that would uh, get a really nice, clean sound for things like that. And and then you're good to go. You you know, you can do it with the voice memos app if you want or if you want to get fancier, you can find like Ferrite on on iPhone or if you want to do it with your Mac, you could be like me and Steven and use Audio Hijack. But that's for crazy people. So <laughs> although it's pretty simple to use. I don't know. It's very flexible. I like it. Yeah, it's funny. I think every podcaster I know uses Audio Hijack. Yeah. I don't know what I would have done on day one if Audio Hijack Pro at the time did not exist. I mean, it was not built to do podcasting. It was built really to capture like real player audio uh, and do that on a schedule. So if there was a show, you know, streaming online, you could sort of TiVo it, right? Like, I think that was its main for at least first purpose in life. But man, thank goodness Paul Kafasis and his team built that thing to be flexible enough to do what we all now do with it. Which, thank goodness, because I don't know what I would have done. I probably would have built some outboard solution and recorded to, you know, something and then brought it back into the computer. I don't know. I don't know. But thankfully, I didn't have to know because Audio Hijack Pro existed at the time. Yeah, Audio Hijack Pro, what's neat about it, and I think the reason you said it's not are that hard or scary. I agree because the for a, a audio product, they built it in a visual way. So you, like, you drag these blocks around and tell, I want this input to go to this file over here and then do this. And it's incredibly friendly in a way that professional audio software rarely is. I really got to hand it to the team over there for building something that is really approachable, even if uh, if you've never opened it before. I, I agree with that. That, that though, is an evolution of the product, right? Because that that's what we call Audio Hijack version 3 and, and hopefully later, right, is that block-based approach, which is awesome. The original Audio Hijack Pro, you were wiring things up in a weird interface. Mm -hmm. You had to think like you were doing it with analog gear, and then it made sense on the screen, which was fine because I knew what I wanted to do with analog gear. So actually, at that point, it was probably the best interface for me, but not good for most people, I think. Um, most people could use it, but they would not. It, it, the 
flexibility and strength of the product was not apparent unless you knew to dig and find it. Whereas now with that blocks approach, it's all right. It's all so easy to see. It's great. Yeah. I mean, just to give an example for me, uh, I have an audio hijack formula, I guess you'd call it that when we record the show, it records the, it records me separately. It records whatever's coming in separately. So if it just means Steven, it's a separate recording of Steven and then it makes a third recording of the entire conversation. So, and that's what I call the reference file for the audio. And it does that the whole time that um, Skype call recorder is going on in the background too. And there's just no problem with it. Nope. The other cool thing is it's got a bunch of user-friendly stuff. So I have meters that go in my menu bar at the top of the screen. So while the show's recording, I can just look at the top of any one of my multiple screens and I can see an active meter showing how the recording is going. It's, it's just a great app. Agreed. Agreed. It's awesome. And then yeah. I also used it. I don't know if this is legal or not, but my wife really wanted a recording of the new parade at Disneyland. <laughs> Disney doesn't sell it. You can't buy it. But somebody had a really good video of it on YouTube. So I just plugged it in and recorded the audio. You should ask it. You should ask a lawyer about that. <laughs> I hope I don't don't get arrested now. Yeah. Sorry. Nice knowing you, buddy. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but I mean, it's just like a tool that comes in handy for all sorts of weird stuff. It is. Yeah. We don't, we don't give it enough love on Mac Power Users. This episode of Mac Power Users is brought to you by our friends over at Squarespace. Make your next move with Squarespace. It lets you easily create a website for your next idea, complete with a unique domain name, award-winning templates, and much more. Maybe you need an online store or you want to have a portfolio to show off your work, or maybe you just want to start writing a blog. Where Squarespace is the all-in-one platform that lets you do all of those things, and there's nothing to install, there are no patches to worry about, no server upgrades are needed, you don't have to worry about that kind of stuff with Squarespace. They have award-winning 24-7 customer support if you need any help. They allow you to quickly and easily grab a unique domain name, and all of those award-winning templates are beautifully designed for you to show off your great ideas. In past Squarespace ads, I've told you about building small websites for nonprofits here in town. I'm in the middle of a really big one, and I'm using one of Squarespace's uh, new themes, and it's really amazing. I can do video as background and banners. I can build these chunky-looking blocks that are really uh, nice-looking, and, of course, it all works great on mobile because Squarespace themes are responsive out of the box. Squarespace plans start at just $12 a month, but you can start a trial with no credit card required by going to squarespace.com MPU. When you decide to sign up, use the offer code MPU to get 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain and to show your support for Mac Power users. Once again, that's squarespace.com slash MPU and the code MPU to get 10% off your first purchase. I'd like to thank Squarespace for the support of the show and all of Relay FM. Squarespace, make your next move, make your next website. So Dave, one thing I wanted to ask you about, you've been covering Apple for a long time with Mac Observer and, and been in the sort of Apple media ecosystem now. And, and I wonder, if you look over that arc, uh, what has changed about uh, about covering Apple? And I, I kind of see this going two directions. One, uh, as far as Apple itself and how the culture of Apple and the surrounding sort of ecosystem have changed, but also about the, some of the tech stuff of how, you know, mediums have come and gone over the years. Uh, I'm curious how you how you look back over that and what, what comes to mind. Yeah, well, you're, you're right. There's a lot to unpack there. I mean, the first thing is that 
21 years ago when we started Mac Observer, Apple was the underdog, right? I mean, it, the I don't think this ecosystem could would exist in today's world. Maybe it would, right? I mean, it's, we don't have a control group in a, with a separate universe, so I can't tell you for sure. But but <laughs> that, that we know of. Not we not, that right. I don't know about it. Um, at least I'm not allowed to say anything. But this world that we live in is a byproduct of the world that existed because Apple was the underdog and everybody that wanted to use Apple that knew it was better uh, sort of bonded together in in support of not only the underdog, Apple, but of each other, too. It was, hey, how do you do this thing? Or, you know, oh, finally, somebody else I can talk to about this. Everybody else that I talk to uses Windows. Like, I want to find like-minded people. And they weren't everywhere. Everybody didn't have an Apple device literally in their pocket or on their wrist. It was, you know, a rare thing in the grand scheme of things to wind up, to, you know, talking with someone and find they were an Apple user. And that really yeah, was... I, the- I remember when you'd be in airports and you'd pull out your Mac laptop and somebody would run up to meet you. They'd be like, yeah, hey, you're a Mac guy. I'm a Mac guy, too. It's like strangers would talk to each other in airports. Yeah, you were best friends suddenly because just because you used that computer. And it was true. Like several of my current best friends are people I met solely because they used Apple products. John Braun, my John F. Braun, uh, as he likes to be called, uh, my co-host on Mac Geek Cab, we met because we were both Apple II users. But it really was the same feeling. It was we're you know, we're the the underdogs. We're the ones that can you know, we're doing the right thing. We we know better, that kind of thing. And it turns out we were right, but uh, that's which is sort of nice. But that Apple's popularity and Apple's success has changed the market dramatically because now it's almost the other way around. Not in every circle. There are definitely circles where, you know, there's more Windows or more Android phones or anything. But um, and the phone in and of itself was a whole new thing. The iPod in and of itself was a whole new thing. When we started, it was just the Mac. That was the main product that Apple had. Now that's not the main product that Apple has. So so there's that. And that certainly has changed and brought more competition into the market. And the market has grown, too. I mean, you know, the, that whole rising tide thing raises most ships. We've seen some sink, but that's, you know, just sort of the natural progression of things. But um I, you know, to that to that end, the sinking comes from not evolving with with the market and going to where your audience is. Right. Mm -hmm. When we first started publishing, the Web was the only place an audience could be, um, at, at least in a distributed way, in an online way. But prior to that was magazines and trade publications that were super popular. And the Web was seen as this alternative. And so, you know, they uh we had magazines and then the web was this alternative. And then now, you know, podcasts came in six years later after we started TMO and it was like, Oh yeah, we should get on that. And then uh, that's obviously been a huge thing for us. You look where we are right now. I, you know, we at backbeat, I mean, backbeat started helping web publishers 20 years ago and and then once we got into podcasting, it also started, you know, we we opened that door as well for Backbeat, helping, you know, publishers monetize and do all the other things that they needed to do. And it was, I think, uh, four years ago that our revenues uh, finally shifted, that the majority of our revenue at Backbeat comes from podcasts now and not web publishing. And part of that's sort of a self-fulfilling prophecy because we, you know, we've paid more attention there and moved sort of moved things there. We've expanded more there than than elsewhere. 
you know, uh, I think it is easier to monetize podcasts than it is websites these days. Um, as difficult as it is to grow an audience with a podcast, I think is, you know, once you get your, once you get a loyal listener, it is easier to keep them uh, on podcasts than it is on the web where things can be so fleeting. Um, it's harder to, harder to make that any given audience member, a loyal audience member. And I, and podcasts are really good at that. So yeah, it's, it's been very interesting. It's a, you know, and who knows what's next more and more video, I suppose, although that's not really a new thing. That's just how it's, how things are evolving. But yeah. What do you, I mean, you, you're doing this too. What do you think about all this? <laughs> yeah. I mean, clearly the, uh, the golden age of blogging is probably, <laughs> probably behind us. That's where I started, you know, 11 years ago was writing and, yeah, and podcasting has really risen over, you know, the last, ten, you know, five to 10 years, especially in our space, a little bit longer than that. And I think, I think you're, you're right for all those reasons that podcasting can be very successful because of audience uh, loyalty. And one thing that I always, you know, people ask about owning an advertising run business is sort of the, the creepy factor. And with the, the web, that's, it's easy to, to do things that are invasive and, and you have to kind of work to be a good guy in that realm. But with podcasting, the advertising model is so simple that we don't, hardly know anything about our listeners as far as like the demographic data you get when you are mining analytics on the web, right? And I like that sort of cleaner uh, business style because it, it gives us uh, really the ability to, to go to an advertiser who wants more and say, no, actually, I don't have that information about my my listeners. And I, I, res I respect their privacy and the tech this is all built on respects their privacy. So you got to go somewhere else. And I think people who... There's a movement of people who want podcasting advertising to become more like the web, and I, I, I'm afraid that they don't know what they're actually asking for because web advertising, as it's become more and more granular, those same tools have given companies like Facebook and Google all the air in the room, and for smaller outlets, it's it's harder than ever, and podcasting has been remarkably resilient to that, and I think that will continue uh, for a long time. Yeah. Hope I is. hope, I hope you're right. Uh, I mean, first of all, I, and I'm cer certainly not surprised to hear you say that, but you know, as someone who's running a similar business to what we do at backbeat, I'm very happy to hear you say that because I agree with everything you just said. However, um, I'm less optimistic about where the business is, you know, five or even 10 years from now mm -hmm. with, with, you know, what what hasn't happened to podcasting yet is all of the radio dollars have not moved in yet. They they are uh, they want to. And, you know, the metrics problems that podcasting has and are sort of being solved uh, or at least attempting to be solved again are, are part of the reason for that, because it's hard to everybody needs to count things equally. It doesn't matter if we're right or wrong. We just need to be together in right. how we're choosing to count things. And. And which is fine. Right? Like that, I think, is great. But I think that's the last hurdle to those radio dollars sort of pouring in here because they know that it's got to go somewhere. Right. The, the radio is going to uh, it, it's not evolving in the way that that sponsors want it to. And yes, those people are used to being very blind to who their listeners are on on radio advertising. But I think part of what they want here 
in podcasting is more of that data. And I think you're exactly right. They don't quite understand the repercussions of what they're asking for and what that's going to do. Of course, those of us that have seen this happen on the web are like, hey, um, I remember what happened when remnant ads appeared on the web. Not sure we want that again. I'm pretty sure the audiences don't want that, but let's see what happens. So, mm-hmm. yeah, I'm a, I'm I'm concerned that I, I wonder. I mean, there are already companies out there that are doing, you know, dynamic insertions into podcasting, which means for those of you listening that it, when you download those shows, not this show, not my shows, other shows, uh, some other shows, when you download the episode at that moment that whatever it is, your, you know, your web browser, or your podcasting client, whatever, when it starts to either play the show or download the show, that's the moment at which the ad is inserted and it is inserted for you specifically. And you're the only one that gets that version of that file and somebody else might get a similar version, but it is decided based on your IP address, the time of day and any other data that might be able to be captured about you. Very similar to what's happening on the web. I can see the appeal for data hungry marketers in exactly that solution. And I'm a little worried to see how quickly that's going to spread and grow and at what point will people like you and me, Stephen, be stuck saying, OK, do we want to just go into a different business or do we want to pivot this business? Because the only people that are willing to spend money are the ones that are getting data dynamically inserted like that. Right. I don't like that that world, but I'm, it, it is a possibility. I actually spent a lot of time at Podcast Movement in August down in Orlando talking to several key players in the industry about we got to be really careful about this. Um, I feel like they listen to me. I mean, I've the, the good news is I've been in that industry long, like basically since the beginning. That that when people, you know, when I email people, sometimes they they pay attention. I I don't know if it'll actually change any minds, but I like to at least have people informed. So I'm trying. <laughs> we all have to try. <laughs> well, as someone who's not as into the business of podcasting as you guys, I, I can just say that. I like the current model because it allows small publishers like us, and we are a pretty small publisher in the grand scheme of things. Yeah. And consumers like the people listening to the show, I think this system protects those two parties the most. And uh, I don't know what change brings, and I guess nobody knows right now, but but I, I'm glad that you and Steven are, are thinking about it to help protect us because I, I don't know what the answers are, but I do know that... I would like my audience to feel comfortable listening to the show that we're not doing anything creepy and and I don't want to do anything creepy. So hopefully we can continue for years to come. Yeah, we'll we'll keep waving that flag together, Stephen. Sounds good. <laughs> yeah, man. <laughs> I hope I hope it doesn't get to a point where it's just the two of us. There there are lots of people waving this flag right now. We're not alone. So I, I like there's hope here, but and I think there's there's the industry's being steered in a good direction. I, th- I think we'll be all right. And the, the other advantage is, I mean, podcasts are based on RSS. I mean, it's like, how do you, how do you get creepy on an open standard like RSS? I mean, I, I, I don't think listeners want to hear all this, but it seems to me like they've got some real hurdles before they can do what they did to the web. Yeah, I don't, I, I I'm not sure RSS is much of a hurdle in that regard. The dynamic insertion engines that exist all are sitting right on top of RSS uh. and have no trouble. Yeah. Dave, you're just making me, you're bringing me down, man. <laughs> I know. I, I just, I'm a, re, you know me, I'm a realist, but sometimes that makes me a, you know, a balloon popper. So, yeah. <laughs> 
Well, let's uh, let's end on on uh, something a little more upbeat, perhaps, and talk about some uh, favorite apps and services that you're you've been checking out recently. Sounds good. Yeah. Well, my new favorite. Anybody that, that listens to me anywhere else is going to be bored for the next thirty seconds because my new favorite app is one called Mac Updater. MacUpdater.net or from Core Code, if you're wondering, because there's several apps with similar names. It will scour your drive and tell you what apps have updates available. And for probably 70% of them, you can just click a button and it will take care of making the update happen. Some apps don't allow that. And so you have to, but it'll, it'll let you click a button that downloads the installer and really kind of walk you through the process with Catalina coming on your Mac. This is super handy because we all have those apps that we downloaded and we run every two months or something and when you run it, it says there's an update available and you're like, I don't have time for that right now. I got to get this work done. And so you skip the update. Well, Mac Updater makes sure that you don't run into those surprises. So um, it, I, I think that's a that's going to be a good one to have. It's I, I love this app. I, I can't believe how happy I am about an app that scours my drive and looks for other apps. But um, uh, here you go. You can believe it. And as this show releases, we are very close to the Catalina release with the 64-bit update. So that's something that you really want to have handled. You want to have your apps all up to date before you push that button. Yeah, and once you get all your apps up to date, running something like uh, St. Clair Software's Go64, which I think you said you've mentioned on the show here before, but if you haven't, uh, there you go. That will scour your drive and make sure you, uh, it'll tell you if you have any 32-bit apps that won't run in Catalina. That's that's going to be the big one. That's where people are going to get hurt is with sort of legacy apps, those things you don't use all that often. You're not necessarily sure whether it's up to date or whether it'll work. And then three months from now, you go to run it and you're like, oh, no, bad news. Dave, you had some great advice. We were talking before we started recording about a kind of a belt and suspenders plan uh, with this. And, and we did a show on kind of getting ready for Catalina, but you know, everybody needs to understand this transition to 64 bit is, is more extreme than what you're normally used to with a Mac operating system update where yeah. you, you have apps that will just not work anymore. And that's not usual, but you had a great it, idea. It is unusual. It, it, we've, we've certainly had apps that were incompatible in different ways, but you might be able to sort of, you know, chewing gum and duct tape them to work the way you needed. If it's a 32 bit app, it simply will not launch. There is no option in Catalina because those libraries to run 32 bit apps are gone. Mm -hmm. So my thought was, well, I always advise people before actually, regardless of whether you're upgrading every six months, my advice is make a disk image clone of your Mac's hard drive and just store it somewhere. Cold storage, you know, put it on your, if you have a network storage device with a lot of space, just put it out there and forget about it. I've had that save my bacon many times where, you know, I, I've deleted some file that I didn't realize I deleted. It's not on any time machine backups because those don't go back far enough. And I can find it on one of my cold storage disk images. And, and that's actually why I started doing this. I had one accidentally from an upgrade and, uh, or from a migration. And thankfully, it, it saved my butt. But it started thinking, wait a minute. We can virtualize Mac OS. So what if we take a disk image of our Mojave Mac running exactly the way we want it and we put it on ice? And if and when the day comes that we need to run that 32-bit app, 
We just run, you know, Parallels, VMware Fusion, or maybe even VirtualBox. I need to experiment with VirtualBox and see if it'll if it'll do this. But you can just virtualize and run your old Mojave environment inside one of these virtualization en- virtualization engines, and you're good to go. You can uh, you can run it and. You still have your old operating system there. You got to sort of be careful that, you know, your uh, your old syncing engines and all that when they fire up aren't, you know, mucking with things in life. And you might want to turn those off. But uh, but that's so that's that's my advice. That's what I'm doing. So do you know, Stephen, if VirtualBox will do uh, will boot Mac OS from a disk image? I, I don't know. I haven't okay. played VirtualBox in some time, but uh, I will find out. Well, I'll yeah. see if I can dig something up for the show notes. Well. Well, I'll tell you one thing that that worries me about that plan, though, is just the integration of iCloud and the operating system now. So you've got, presumably on your shelf drive, you've got an image of your computer as it is sometime in late September, early October, and then you pull it out in January 2020, and your iCloud data and drive has evolved, you know, three months what happens when you plug that in? Is it going to phone home and start screwing things up? That, that that's, that's the one concern I have. So that's actually a really good point. I, I think to add to that advice, well, first of all, you're going to want to know how to get this thing up and running so that you're not panicking in that moment of panic. So it's good to find your virtualization engine of choice. Maybe it's a virtual box, which we keep mentioning only because it's free. Um, maybe VirtualBox can do it. We'll We'll dig into that and we'll get some data for everybody. But um, test it. And while you're in there testing it and making sure that it boots, now turn sign yourself out of iCloud, turn off Dropbox and any other syncing engines you have. Maybe even, uh, you know, keep if, if you had, say, mail auto launching when you when you started up your computer, turn off anything that's auto launching. You don't you're not going to need that stuff in that moment of panic down the road. You just need Mojave running configured the way you liked it and hopefully the app that you needed to run right there inside the image. So, yeah, that's that's really that's a good point, David. Yeah, you really want to put it in a bottle if you can. Yeah, right. Put it in a bottle. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And, you know, maybe you can get away with not even having networking turned on with your virtual machine there because you can in your virtualizer, you can say, don't show this thing to the network. And now it doesn't matter what syncing engines you have turned on. They, if they can't talk, they can't talk. And that just depends on your app because so many of them phone home now yeah. to start up. But the, um, but yeah, yeah. It, with a little planning, you can get around this. And I think the beginning point for this is like Dave said, get go 64, take a close look at what you're about to lose and figure out if you need to have a virtual solution for that problem. But uh, it, it is a big deal. And there are going to be, um, there are going to be problems. You know, there's going to be listeners that lose something they desperately need. Like if you're running a print shop and you've got some antiquated software that works with your specific $30,000 printing machine, <laughs> uh, stay away, you know, just just keep things running. <laughs> Don't update, you know. I mean, mm-hmm. I, I think it's it's that kind of extreme where this is one where you really need to make the choice to make the upgrade. For sure. And doing some homework while y'all have been talking, it looks like VirtualBox... Does it play super nice with macOS clients? So I think if you really are going to rely on this, it's probably worth checking out Parallels or Fusion uh, just to make sure that you're you're in good shape. You guys have a favorite between those two? I use VMware Fusion only because like 
10 years ago, I got a free code for it. And so I just keep upgrading that license. But I think both are, are totally reasonable options. Yeah, I'm the same. I bought Parallels, I don't know, a lot, yeah. maybe version one, and I just keep upgrading. What about you, Dave? If, are you on with any of them? I, I bounce back and forth, to be perfectly honest. They, you know, they, they give us review copies of both of them if and when we ask. Uh, and it, for what I do, it doesn't matter. They both do great with anything I've ever needed. Now, if I were doing something very specific, like playing a certain game or, you know, running some specific piece of software every day, I might that might cause me to find a favorite. But thankfully, I don't have to run those every day. So I, I really don't have a favorite. I'll probably lean towards parallels with this. I, honestly, even even though we know that VirtualBox doesn't work very nicely with macOS client, I'll probably try and make it work with that because I like the technical challenge. But um, I realize that might be an exercise in futility. So parallels will probably be my choice just um, because I have to flip a coin on it, and that's the that's where the coins landed most recently. So, yeah. Any any other apps or services you're excited about these days, Dave? Um, you know, well, I mean, I, I think they were a sponsor of this episode, but uh, Sanebox has been something that has been saving my bacon since 2013. And in fact, it might have even been from me that Katie learned about it years ago and and brought it into this ecosystem too. But um. But regardless, Sanebox, it helps me manage my email. And if it Sanebox is one of those services where what I say is true. If it went out of business tomorrow, the thing at the top of my priority list tomorrow would be designing and building my own version of Sanebox uh, to do the things that I need it to do for me. It manages my email in a very, very efficient way. Uh, it can it, it, it first of all, as I think listeners probably know it filters your email on inbound but it also has this reminders feature where on outbound email i can say remind me about this particular email in three weeks and then boom it just appears back in my inbox in a flagged way in three weeks and that part of it is the part that i couldn't live without the filtering i could probably get something else to do but that reminders feature is killer so. yeah it's, it saves you so much work in like Ugh. not having to track that in your task list it just handles right. it for you it just handles it yeah exactly Exactly. What about on your uh, your iPhone and iPad? Any of your apps sparking joy lately? Um, y- you know, I don't know that I've found any iOS apps. I probably do have some that that I use religiously and don't even think about it. But um, no, nothing jumps to mind. I've been having fun with some of the Apple Arcade stuff because we've been testing that around here. So, um, you know, what the golf, of course, is is a fun one because it'll sort of surprise you in its own special way. Uh, so that, that one's been fun, uh, for productivity. I like both screens and prompt, which allow me to remote into other devices. Prompt yeah. is a command line client and screens is a, a screen sharing client. And, you know, on the screen sharing thing, um, there's a app called uh, remote for Mac and you install a client on your Mac and then on your iPhone or iPad, you run this app called Remote for Mac. It's from uh, Evgeny Chirpak. And I'm sorry, Evgeny, if I'm mispronouncing your name. It's built to be a remote control software for someone who's really lazy and doesn't want to have to like mess around with keyboard and mouse emulation on their iPhone. It's got plugins, sort of built-in plugins for all sorts of apps so if you have, say, VLC running on your, if you've got a Mac mini plugged into your TV instead of an Apple TV, or if you're streaming something from your Mac, it's got, you know, things for VLC and Netflix 
and Plex and all of that and iTunes too. So you get these customized button remote controls to control apps on your Mac. It's really, it's brilliantly done. And it really is built for somebody who just wants to like sit on the couch and now they've got a watch app for it too. So you don't even have to pick up your phone. It's ultimate like couch potato software, which is great for <laughs> if you've got that sort of scenario going. What I, what I love about it, if I'm in the bedroom and I see the studio light up down the hallway, like the Mac woke up for some reason, yes. I can put my Mac to sleep with my phone. It's great. <laughs> Remote will do that. Yeah, that's right. It has. You know what? I do that all the time. I didn't even think about that. That's one of the main features of it for me. You're right. Yep. I'm going to write him. I really want him to put those triggers into shortcuts so I can like really like go nuts with this. Oh, yeah. I'll introduce you if if you want. But happily. Yeah. 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 All right. Well, Dave, as always, great having you on the Mac Power Users. Congratulations on 700 and so many episodes of Mac Geek Gab. Well, and congratulations on 500 and and so many to you guys. Like, I mean, that's a, that's, that's awesome. Yeah. 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 Well, well, both of these shows are shows where we don't just get online and talk about the latest news. You know, we, we actually prep and try and give listeners, you know, signal over noise. And, and I'm really, uh, I'm really proud of what we've done and I'm really pleased and I want to thank you on behalf of the community for what you've done. Well, thanks. It goes both ways. Absolutely. I, yeah. Thank you. And thanks for having me back. This is awesome. Fun stuff. Okay, so again, you can find Dave over at Mac Geek Gab. Uh, you can also find him at Mac Observer. Uh, are you big on Twitter, Dave? I don't know. I have I have gotten back into Twitter since I started using the Twitter client, which gives better notifications than any third party client. So yeah, you can find me at Dave Hamilton on Twitter. All right, great. Any other anywhere else people should look for you, Dave? No, that's fine. You, you, I'm not a hard guy to find. If you're looking for for something, shoot me a note. I'm happy to hear from you. Okay, well, that about wraps it up. Thanks, Dave, for coming in to the Mac Power Users again. We are the Mac Power Users. You can find us over at relay.fm slash MPU. Don't forget to sign up for the newsletter. And thank you to our sponsors, SaneBox, Omni Group, and Squarespace. See you next week.